Welcome back to the Neighborhood Family. I am your favorite neighbor, Jay Murray, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Happy Hill, the podcast. This is where we connect, cultivate, and build a meaningful community that is centered around health, agape, power, institute, happy hood. It is a purpose-driven lifestyle. What's up? How you doing, my family, my neighbors? Welcome again to the Neighborhood for another edition of Happy Hill, the podcast. Finish what you start. This is where we talk to uh, extraordinary individuals, uh, insightful individuals. We learn about their how-tos, as well as just their experiences that has helped them, that have shaped them and molded them to who they are today and truly has allowed them to live a purpose-driven lifestyle. And today's guest truly has done this. Uh, I, I would kind of pretty much just hit some highlights, but I, I'm looking forward to learning more about his journey. He is a husband, father, entrepreneur, man of faith, a life coach, and also the author of Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. And again, this is pretty much just a rough uh, couple of bullet points. He's also was an NCAA Division I basketball um, player. He was a coach, uh, countless leadership roles. Uh, happy family. We're truly uh, talking with a leader of leaders today. Uh, welcome to the neighborhood, Mr. Terry Tucker. How you doing, sir? I'm great, Jay. Thanks for having me on. I'm really looking forward to talking with you today. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. As, as I said before, Happy Family, as I was kind of putting together uh, some talking points of how I was going to introduce this individual, I was like, wow, you know, it's so much areas that we can go into. Uh, again, as, as I said, you uh, within your, your bio kind of talk about certain countless leadership roles that you led, you know, as you, um, you know, work for Wendy's International, uh, also did a uh, a role in the uh, police department in the SWAT negotiator uh, head coach. You created uh, a, a security company. So there's tons and tons of leadership roles that I'm pretty sure help you uh, to kind of formulate this book. So I guess, Terry, kind of starting with like what was the catalyst to creating this book? Yeah, the, the book was really born out of two conversations I had. One was with a a former player that I had coached in high school mm -hmm. and she had moved to the area where my wife and I live uh, outside of. And I remember after dinner saying to her, you know, I'm really excited that you're living close and I can watch you find and live your purpose. Mm. And she got real quiet for a while. And then she looked at me and she's like, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I said, I have no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about. Finding the reason you were put on the face of this earth, using your unique gifts and talents, and then living that reason. So that was one conversation. And then I had a young man reach out to me on social media and ask me what I thought were the most important things that he should learn to not just be successful in his job or in business, but yeah. to be successful in life. And I did want to give him that, you know, get up early, work hard, help others. Not that those aren't important. They are. They're yeah, incredibly yeah. important. But I wanted to see if I could go deeper with him. So I, mm -hmm. I spent some time. I wrote some notes. I you know, kind of had these 10 ideas, these 10 thoughts, these 10 principles. And mm -hmm. then I sent them to him. And then I sort of stepped back and I was like, well, you know, I got a life story that fits underneath this principle. Or I know somebody whose life emulates that principle. So literally, I, I've been battling cancer for 10 years. And in 2020, April of 2020, I had my leg amputated. And in June of 2020, I started chemotherapy for the tumors that I have in my lungs. And during that three-month period while I was healing, I sat down at the computer every day and I built stories. And they're real stories about real people underneath each of those principles. 
And that's how sustainable excellence came to be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think just the the title itself is very intriguing. Sustainable excellence It's it's almost as if it's, it, it implies that excellence to continue on or have this consistency around life, you know, where everyone can hit this point, right? Where we having the good, good days where again, you, I'm going to use a sports analogy. Hey, you had a wonderful game. You had, you know, 60 points, Again, you know, being extra a, a little bit here, but how can you do that on a consistent basis? You know, and I think that's really what sustainability is really is, is about, right? Is really doing this day in and day out. How can you make it really part of your life, right? And I'm 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 curious to to understand your upbringing. And was there anything within your upbringing really, as you look back now, kind of helped you to really live this type of lifestyle? Or was kind of some of the hidden moments that kind of helped shape and foster you? to really want to go out and you know what? I need to understand my, my purpose. I need to make sure that I leave an imprint on life itself. Like, was there anything within your upbringing that really helped to mold you during, during this uh, time now? Yeah, I, I think a lot of just my upbringing, I, I am the, I'm the oldest of three boys. I mean, you can't tell this from looking at me, but I'm <laughs> six foot eight inches tall and I played <laughs> college basketball at the Citadel. I've got mm -hmm. a brother who's six foot seven, who was a pitcher for the University of Notre Dame, and then another brother who's six foot six, who was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers in the National Basketball Association. And then mm -hmm. my dad was six five. So I always kind of joked that if you sat behind our family in church growing up, there wasn't a prayer's chance you were going to see anything <laughs> that was going on. You know, uh -huh. but our five foot eight inch mother was really the boss. Didn't matter how big, tall, strong we were, whatever mom said went. And I think, you know, to, I guess to answer your question, my parents sort of set that foundation, set that groundwork right. where yeah. I, they did what I guess I call the divide and conquer parenting. It would be like, okay, Terry's got a game over here. Dad will go to that. And Larry's got to practice over here. Mom will go to that. So we were always running in a million different directions. And the importance of family in, in our lives, I mean, you know, caring about each other, loving each other, supporting each other. I remember when I graduated from college, I, I got that first job, as you indicated, at Wendy's. Um, mm -hmm. but I lived with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mom care for my father and my grandmother were both dying of different forms of cancer. And my youngest brother was in high school at the time and he had a basketball game one night. And I told my dad, I said, I'm not going to Brian's game. I, I, I haven't worked out in a couple of days. I'm going to go to the gym. And my dad looked at me and he's like, no, you're not. I'm like, what do you mean? No, I'm not. I, I, I'm a man. I have my own job. I have, you know, I, and, and he's like, your brother needs you. That's what our family has always been about. Loving, caring, supporting each other. He needs you. You need to go to the game. And so even as an adult, my dad's, you know, reminding me that, you know, that foundation of your life is, is you know, in addition to God, our family. And yeah. so it, I, my dad was right. I ended up going to the game instead of going to work out. Yeah. But I, I think that's, you know, my whole upbringing was, you know, being supported. I, I had three knee surgeries in high school. My parents were always there with mm. me. I, I remember one night, I mean, I was like 14 years old and I had, I had knee surgery. This was before arthroscopic surgery was available. Yeah. And so I was in the hospital for like four days after the surgery and I developed a fever. I had an infection in the wound. I was in a lot of pain. I was getting pain medication. And one night at like three o'clock in the morning, I started hallucinating. And I, mm. I was so scared. I picked up the phone. I called home. 
And my, you know, I got my mom on the phone. I'm like, I, you know, I was crying. I was scared. And mom's like, open the, open the drawer, the nightstand. There's a rosary in there. Pull out the rosary, start saying the rosary. So that calmed me, that, that gave me, you know, so there, there was all kinds of little events like that, that kind of got me through the life. But the foundation was the family was the most important thing. And our parents taught us that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and as you, again, remember those things that has helped to build your foundation, you know, one of the things that you mentioned um, in your, and again, happy family, go to uh, motivationalcheck.com. Again, really learn a lot about Terry Tucker. There has a blog, there has several information there and resources. But one thing you have that you have there that you discuss is around the four truths to kind of help you with your decision making. And, you know, one of them is, you know, controlling your mind or your mind will control control you. Right. And I'm, I'm curious to know, based on your roles, because as you said before, you started Wendy's International. And I think, um, again, you, you move. Uh, to another area, uh, Cincinnati, or picked up another role. So you was in a variety of different roles that I, am, I can only assume really taught you how to flex different leadership styles, as well as just different personal um, um, skills, right, and development. So I guess when, when you think about those journeys and the journeys that you, you had, was there anything that really stuck out to you uh, with any of those roles that help you to develop maybe that first truth, you know, around controlling your mind or your mind will control you. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I learned that one kind of early on in life. I, I mentioned okay. that I had three knee surgeries when I was in high school. And I remember when I went back playing, my mind was putting all kinds of negative thoughts into my brain, mm -hmm. you know, things like, hey, you know, you're probably a step slower after these surgeries and college coaches aren't going to be interested in recruiting you. <laughs> And I remember thinking, wait a minute, I'm still playing at an elite level and college coaches are still reaching out about the possibility of playing for their school. And, and so I, I, I realized I had, to, I had to change the narrative. I had to flip the switch you know, to something positive. And if you think about it, we have 60 to 70,000 thoughts that pass through our, our mind every day, many of which we don't even pay attention to. Mm -hmm. But if you think about it, your brain can hold one thought at a time. Why would you want to make that a negative thought? So I, I learned very early that you need to control your brain or your brain is going to control you. And it's just a survival mechanism. You know, our brains right. are hardwired to, to, you know, the status quo, the way things are right now. It's good. It's comfortable. Leave it alone. Leave it right where it is. The problem with that is the only way we're going to improve, the only way we're going to get better, the only way we're going to stretch ourselves is to step outside that comfort zone. And the minute we do that, yeah. that's when our brain starts attacking us because our brain is trying to preserve itself, you know, preserve us as a human being. And so we don't want to do things that are new. We don't want to do things yeah. you know, that are not comfortable, but that's the only way we're going to grow if we do that. So yeah. it's sort of a constant battle between our brains and us wanting to get better. Yeah. I I, I mean, a couple of things come, come to mind, as, as you mentioned, one is the growth mind, mindset, right? Um, and really having that, because I think as I think about my moments where I was stretched and really um, was, uh, I guess, developing was when I was able to accept the discomfort. You know, I was able to be comfortable being comfortable, you know, in, in those moments. And as you mentioned, and it's funny, you know, when, when you think about it um, from a, uh, I, I guess, um, 
academic perspective, um, you know, around our thoughts of how many that we pass through and being that our mind can only, you know, ponder on one of those thoughts, like why it would be negative, which is like, it's so like, yeah, that's why should it be negative? You know, it makes it, it makes so much sense, right? Um, and and I I wonder with when you play like NCAA basketball and and just again learning those different uh, skills uh, that really help you and develop you, like how was that transition into your career? Like how did that kind of help you with with your transition? Yeah, I, I was I was lucky on a lot of uh, fronts. I, I was I was recruited by Mike Szczeski, Coach K, when he was at Army, when he was at West Point. Oh, and wow. I, I mean, just a super guy, just a, a man of integrity. And I ended up saying no to him just because of my knee surgeries. I wasn't sure my knee could handle West mm-hmm. Point. But I ended up going to a military school in Charleston, South Carolina. And I played for a guy by the name of Les Robinson, who kind of in a lot of ways had the same philosophy of, of Coach K, where you take care of each other. You're, you're part of a team. You take care of each other. You look each other in the eye. You tell each other the truth. You hold each other accountable. And, mm-hmm. you know, when when you learn those things as part of a team, and I think one of the biggest things that, that team sports in general has taught me, and, and again, I started playing basketball when I was nine years old and played all the way up until I was 21, and one of the big things I learned from playing team sports was the importance of being part of something that's bigger than yourself. And you realize on a team that if you don't do your job, not only do you let yourself down, but you let your teammates down, your coaches down, your fans down, et cetera. And if you think about it, the biggest team game that we all play is this game of life. So I I learned a great deal, you know, from from the people that I was able, and you know, whether it was my conscious decision or whether I was just lucky to be associated with these people and, and taught me those things that I could carry over into, you know, the business world, into law enforcement, into what mm-hmm. I'm doing now that you hold people accountable. You, you trust each other. You care about each other. It's the same thing that my parents taught me about yeah. a family. Yeah. Yeah. The accountability, I, I think, and, and again, is, is one piece that, we don't talk more about of like it's not when I say we don't talk more about it is that we don't allow it to be ingrained into especially leaders of today, you know, around accountability. And and that goes across the board, you know, no matter if you're leading in government or if you're leading in, in corporate America, you know, accountability is is truly uh, in my opinion, is is missing, and I, I'm I'm not going to get on my, my my soapbox here, but I think that that again, when you think about accountability, um, is is so much of one starting with yourself, but also holding others accountable, you know, holding others accountable. And as a father, I see that the the importance of that, right? And I'm I'm curious now to kind of think about as you think about your you, yourself as a father. Like sometimes I was amazed how much of leadership or how much attributes were in fatherhood, you know, when it comes to being a leader that, hey, you're a leader at your home, you know. And as I think about with my kids of, hey, having an older daughter that's 12 years old, where we have to kind of guide her. And then my son, which is younger, is more of a directing type of leadership. And I'm curious to, to know, like, was anything that you gleaned from? 
as a, a, a father that kind of helped you within all these different leadership roles, even as a coach and a, even as you think about sustainable excellence, you know, and, and as parents, you know, what certain things you kind of learned within your journey uh, as a father? Yeah, I, I certainly learned a lot from my parents, but, you know, I was it was kind of different for me because, yeah. you know, I, I, I had no sisters growing up. I mm-hmm. went to a, an all guys Catholic high school. When I went to the Citadel, it was an all male college. And now I get out and I get married and my wife and I have one child, a daughter. And I remember, mm-hmm. you know, we went to the OBGYN doctor and it's like, do you want to know what it is? And it's like, yeah, sure. It's like, well, you should buy pink. I'm like, oh, no, 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 You need to leave it in there till it's done. I don't know anything about raising a girl. You know, <laughs> I, I was like, I, I have no idea. But yeah, you raise a child, you, you yeah. know, and, I mean, you can say yeah, it's a boy or a girl and, and that's fine. But, you know, I, I wanted to raise my daughter with discipline, with, you know, holding her accountable, with loving her, with knowing that I was going to be there to support her, not just me, but my wife as well. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. We, you know, we we held her. I mean, I, we always used to say that the summer was the time to deprogram her from all the bad habits that she'd learned from her friends while at school. It's like, you know, yeah, we don't do that in this household. And, and yeah. I remember one day she was at bas- she was at a basketball camp. And the, you know, they had a vending machine there and, and somebody put in, you know, some money and got a drink. Well, you know, she hit the button and then she got a drink for free. And we had a big discussion with that oh. about, you know, how that's in, in, you know, I mean, yes, you didn't steal on purpose, but that was stealing. And then I remember when, when she was, she fortunately or unfortunately got my height. She's six foot two and she also has an NBA three point shot. So she was recruited to play basketball in college and she ended up attending and graduating from the air force Academy. Mm-hmm. And I remember when she made that decision, I said, okay, now you're going to have to call these other coaches and let them know that you've made your decision. And she's like, no, I'll just send them a text. I said, no, you're not going to send them a text. This has been about developing a relationship. You have yeah, a relationship yeah. with those those men and women. They've come out here to see you. You've been to their schools. You have to let them know. And it was it was amazing how, you know, I'm real comfortable doing this, but I'm not comfortable picking up the phone and having mm-hmm. a conversation. And we literally had to role play that. And, and, you know, it was like, okay, we did that. And she called them. And a couple of the coaches kind of got mad at her. I mean, she was playing Division I basketball at an unbelievably great academic institution. Yeah. I'm yeah. Like and you're you're a division two school that doesn't have that academic rep. I, I mean, really, how are you getting mad at that child? And I said to her, "What did you learn from that?" Mm. She's like, I, "I don't know." I said, "Maybe they didn't have your best interest in mind. Maybe it was all about what you could do for them, not yes. necessarily how much they could help you as well." And I learned that same thing when I was being recruited. I I didn't mm-hmm. understand. I didn't understand that. I mean, you're young. You you need mm-hmm. somebody to guide you. So. I think in a lot of ways it was, you know, I took a lot of what my parents did and I improved on it and tried to do the best I could as, as a dad. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's at the end of the day, even when I think about um, my parents, you know, in hindsight, they did the best they they, they could. Right. And I and I appreciate that because at the end of the day, that's all I'm being able to do. That's all I'm able to do is do the best. Right. And I think um, as, as you were were was discussing there or just talking one word came to me it was on integrity uh, integrity excuse me and i think about it as when i think about what's missing 
and I'm, you know, again, I'm 40 years old, you know, so, you know, I have been in, in corporate America for, you know, going on almost 20 years now. So when I think about integrity, when I think about when I'm mentoring uh, uh, young adults, is really somewhat kind of building up this mindset around integrity, around values that you hold, right? That will help you in making decisions, you know? And as I, you know, we talked about one of the decisions uh, of your four decision-making uh, process or four truths that you mentioned around control your mind, but you also have some others on, on here that I definitely want to make sure that we take a, a, a deeper dive in. The second one you have is embrace the pain and discomfort we all experience in life and use it to make you stronger and more determined individual. What did you mean by that? So I, I think it's, you know, again, I think it goes back to how our brains are wired, you know, to avoid pain and discomfort. And, and you, you see that. I've certainly seen that over my life where people have made, you know, they're, they're in pain, whether it's, it's an emotional pain, you know, mental pain, physical pain, and they make bad decisions. They turn to alcohol. They turn to drugs. They turn to behavior that's not good for them. And, I, you know, we're, we're so used to trying to get away from pain that I guess what I mean from that is I think we ought to look at it from the opposite direction. Instead of running from pain, what if we took it? What if we took that pain and we flipped it inside of ourselves and we used it to make us stronger and more resilient? We used it. We burned it as fuel. We used it as energy to make us stronger and more resilient individuals. And, and again, I, that's what I've done. And again, I am the biggest wimp in the world. You're looking at me right now. There's no S on my chest. I do not wear a cape in any way. And the way I look at it is this. We're all going to experience pain in our lives. And it doesn't have to be, you know, cancer pain or even any kind of an illness. You could break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or, you know, have a fender bender on the way to work or not yeah. get the promotion at your job that you believe you deserve. Pain is inevitable. Suffering, on the other hand, suffering is optional. Suffering is what you do with that pain. Do you use it to make you a stronger and more determined individual? Or do you wallow in it and feel sorry for yourself and want other people to feel sorry for you? I just look at it as, you know, like so many things in life, we have a choice. Do you want to grab it with the handle of faith and resilience? Or do you want to grab, you know, the handle of, of discord and depression? It's your choice. And life doesn't owe you anything. Life isn't going to say, you know, hey, Jay, grab this handle. It's going to be your choice on which yeah. handle you want to grab. And for me, it's just whenever I go through these, you know, I've had my foot amputated, I've had my leg amputated. You know, I'm still being treated for the tumors in my lungs. I go on Monday for another week of treatment. And I look at it as, okay, I go for another week of treatment. Do I have to go for another week of treatment or do I get okay. to go for another week of treatment? Going back to being part of something that's bigger than yourself, I'm on a clinical trial right now for the tumors in my lungs that probably is not going to save my life, but may save the life of somebody else, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, based on all the data the doctors are gleaning from my blood work, you know, my scans and things like that. So for me, it's, yes, that treatment's going to suck. It's, it's going to be uncomfortable, but you know what? I get to do that because I might get to help somebody down the road. Wow. Um couple of thoughts. Um, and again, happy of the podcast. We're talking to Terry Tucker, um, the author of Sustainable um, Excellence, uh, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon Extraordinary Life. Um, as you, you were just, just mentioning there, a couple of things came to my mind. Um, and one thing I have 
matured in is the embracing piece, embracing change. Uh, I mean, let's just come on. Like the last 24, 25 months, we have been <laughs> embracing change, you know, and, and we're, we're going to continue to kind of embrace this, this change. And I think it's something powerful when you think about it. And as I think about it, as far as like our God-given will, that he has given us this free will of choice. Like it's so much power in that, that you get to choose, as you mentioned, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Like you get to choose that, you know, like, and, and I mean, I know it may sound very cliche, but like that is very powerful as human beings that God has given us this will to choose that. Right. And I think about it in, in so many different ways of, to, to your point, I keep thinking about it, like, if your mind has all these thoughts and it only can process one thought at a time, why make it negative? Why not make it grand? Why not make it very imaginative? You know, why make, you know, why, why not make it very super, you know, and, 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 and loving and, and, and full of healing, you know? And I think, you know, as, as you, as I'm thinking about it and kind of, you know, read different books of your mind is so powerful that at times, and again, I have no research or no evidence base of this, but when I think about it in the perspective of you can really begin your healing from your mind, you know, mentally kind of going into that mindset of if you're dealing with depression, if you're dealing with certain things, certain illness, well, your mind can really help you to go into that journey or position you in a healing posture, man. And, and I think that's, that's so wonderful, as you mentioned, as far as embracing. And as you kind of have the, these truths, and we're, we're going to talk about two, two others, when did you come up with this concept? Like, when, when was this like, oh, you know, this poor truth? Like, oh, yeah. It makes it, it's really kind of funny because I was on a podcast that was called uh, the three truths. And so yeah. I had to come up with, you know, I'm like, what it was really, it, it forced me to say, okay, what, what is important? What's guiding me? You know, what, what's in my soul that that's making me move forward. And so I, I came up with three of them. The, the next one on the list is the one I've added recently, mm-hmm. but, but to go back to what you were saying, I was, um, when I was in high school in Chicago, I played uh, in the same conference with a player by the name of Isaiah Thomas, who eventually went to Indiana, uh, mm-hmm. won a national championship with Bobby Knight, and it was drafted by the Pistons in the NBA, won a couple NBA championships. And I used to see him, you know, in the summer when we would come back to Chicago. And I, I said to him, you know, what's it like to play for Knight? And, and he, he used to talk about um, a saying that Knight had, and it kind of goes mm-hmm. back to what you were saying a minute ago. And the saying's real simple. He said, Knight used to always tell him, mental is to physical as four is to one. So what, you know, here's this great coach teaching elite athletes how to use their bodies to be great basketball players. But what he was really saying is your mind is four times more important than your physical body is. Wow. 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 That's so, so powerful. So powerful. And as you mentioned, this third one, and I I think I may have some understanding why you may, may have put it here, but what you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other people. And, and I'm, as you mentioned, as far as with, with some of your treatment, was that some of the, the thought process behind that, that truth? 
Yeah, it, it really was. I mean, that's kind of a like a legacy, you know, a legacy yeah. truth. You know, yeah, yeah. I think it's important regardless of what stage of life we're in. You know, we're just starting out. We're middle age. We're coming to the end, whatever, that we think about the end game. And, you know, I always ask people, what are people going to say about you at your funeral? Yeah. And maybe more importantly, what do you want people yeah. to say about you at your funeral? When I had my leg amputated and I found out I had these tumors in my lungs, I went with my wife to the to the mortuary, to the cemetery and to our church. And I planned my funeral. And because I do talks and I come on these podcasts and I talk about motivation and the need to keep moving forward, I actually got some brushback from people who were like, well, don't you think it's kind of negative to you know plan your funeral? And I kind of looked at him like, well, the last time I checked, we're all going to die. I don't think anybody's going on a cure for life right now. You know, I, and and I, what I told him is everybody dies, but not everybody really lives. Yeah. Wow. Come on, Terry. Come and I heard a Native American Blackfoot proverb years ago that went like this. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life. And I think that's the important words in this in this saying. Yeah. Live your life in such a way. So that when you die, the world cries and yeah. you rejoice. That's what I want. That's what I'm looking for. So, you know, it's it's we're all going to die, but we're not all really going to live. Yeah. Yeah. And that's. <laughs> yeah, that that is so powerful, man, because. For for me in this moment, as I am, you know, I guess I'm 40 years old, I, I turned 40 last year, I'll be 41 later on this year. You think about the moments of now your legacy. You know, like I said, me and my wife have been married for 15 years. My daughter's 12. My son is six. So now it's you starting to have these legacy thoughts, right? And I came across this, this quote, um, in which I'm, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it. Um, but it's, it's es in essence, it's saying the same thing you're saying pretty much is to die is to live and to live is to die, mm -hmm. you know? And the idea that each day, you're learning how to die. And when you think about it, it may sound very counterintuitive, but in actuality, it's saying you're learning how to live. Yeah. You know, you're learning how to live because you understand that the process of it will end up in the dirt, back in the dirt. So you no longer, and where I used to have a fear of dying, you know, and I had to come to a point of really understanding that one, A, we're all going to die. Two, I know what my belief is and my faith and where I rest upon. So there's no fear with that. And three, now I don't have to live. I get to live. Yeah. You know, I get to live. And, and it's almost this point. Like I don't I, I don't have to die. I get to die. You know, now I'm able to live. I'm able to to your point to live with this 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 freedom of 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 really understanding what my truths are and I like how you put that together now and and whoever that podcast was thank you so much because that's <laughs> that's truly uh some some gold nuggets because that's something that I need to do you know and happy feeling maybe we all need to do to really write down what are your truths you know what are your truths to kind of help you with decision making but more importantly, when you think about like as you do endeavors, as you, you know, you know, network with people, because a lot of people are not going to fit within your truth. And that's OK. That's totally OK. That's totally OK. Um, so kind of going back to the book, Sustainable Excellence. 
Why the title? I've always wanted to, you know, in my life, I've always wanted to be the best or or associated with the best. You know, that's yeah. why I joined the SWAT team. You know, they, they have the best training, the best equipment. They're usually the best people and things like that. You know, in basketball, I always wanted to be the, you know, the best player. Uh, you know, in business, I always wanted to do the best. I, I mean, so it was always wanting to be excellent. And, mm-hmm. you know, people always ask me, it's like, well, you write this book, it's called Sustainable Excellence. Well, what does excellence mean? And, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I kind of, and sort of sheepish about it. I'm like, I, I don't know. Because mm. if, if you read the introduction to it, you know, you and I may look at the same, let's just use sports as an analogy. We mm. may look at the same player and you may say, hey, that guy's excellent. And I may say, yeah, they're good, but I don't think they're excellent. So excellence kind of like beauty is in the eye of the beholder, you know? So you, and, and so that's why I, I don't think I can define it. You're going to have to define excellence for yourself. You know, was Kobe Bryant excellent? I'd probably say he was, but there may be some people who said he wasn't. So, so I, you know, excellence is, you know, how do we, how are we great at whatever we're doing in life? And then not only how are we great, how do we sustain that? And so many people, you know, they get to the top of the mountain or they get to, you know, they're in the corner office running their business or whatever. And what do they do? They sort of sit back, you know, put their feet up on the desk, have a drink. Everything's great. And then what happens? A year from now, somebody surpasses them. It's like, wait a minute. How did that happen? That's because you didn't sustain your excellence. And the way you sustain excellence is you change. You adapt. You continue to move forward. You continue to find ways to get better and be better. And so many people get to, I'm excellent, and then they stop. Who? yeah, worked hard, got here, I'm good. No, you got to keep going. You got to keep sustaining that excellence. So that's mm-hmm. kind of how the, the title came about. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think it's, it's so so fitting because on a, on one end of the spectrum, I think we have these, these idea or this concept when we think about who are you competing with, right? And to, and to the example that you mentioned of, hey, you're sitting back, you're relaxed. Now people have surpassed you. Now. And you really have to kind of go back and really understand when you think about your truths, when you think about your values, and what does excellence mean to you? Because even as people surpass you, it may be very well that, yeah, they may have surpassed you in this particular aspect of life. But what are you doing o- over here? You know, as I think about excellence, it's this totality of life for, for me, right? Is 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 my faith? Is is my um? Is my business? Is my uh, uh being a great father, husband? You know, uh, human being, right? It's all those those things there. And one thing I had to learn was not to allow others to project their aspirations on me. You know, to where you're now chasing after excellence that is not your definition you know that's not not your definition because one thing i had to come to understanding is like what does success looks like that's kind of similar to what excellence looks like and how would you do how how do you define that and i think what you're doing is is so so great because we need to take a moment especially as we now have went through i mean a very trying time that we'll now tell our our kids over and over and they'll tell their kids, you know, of, of what we have went through. But I think what was excellence to or how you define excellence two years ago could be different. Could be different. 
And when you think about the how you evolve, how, how you adapt, I'm, I'm curious to 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 know from your perspective, Terry, and this kind of get into like maybe some how to's. How do individuals adapt? You know, what questions should we be asking our, ourselves? You know, when you think about, oh, I have a gap, you know, or I have a weakness, you know, is, is there anything that you will say to an individual um, where, hey, there's ways that I am understanding now I need to adapt or what I defined as excellence years ago is now has become obsolete. What do I do now? Yeah, I guess let me start out with sort of a little bit about my journey. I, I yeah. you know, I felt that and, and I guess maybe let me back up for a second. You know, we all think our purpose or, or you know, how whatever we're doing in life that it's got, you know, our, our purpose, our, our why, whatever has to be our job. It doesn't. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. your job could be over here. It's what you do to pay the bills. But yeah. your purpose or your why is, is to write or to volunteer or to coach or, or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. So yeah. don't think that your job has to be your purpose. Mm-hmm. And I remember. And, and, and the other thing is you're going to have, I think, if you live long enough, different purposes in life. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was younger, I felt my purpose yeah. was basketball, you know, mm-hmm. and then I felt it was to be in law enforcement. And then now I think it's to put as much goodness, positivity, motivation, love back into the world with whatever time I have. And so when I sort of the backstory here, if you look at my resume, my first two jobs were in business, you know, with Wendy's, you mentioned that. Mm-hmm. And then I was a, a hospital administrator and then I became a police officer. My grandfather was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954. So he was in Chicago during Prohibition when alcohol was outlawed in the United States, during the Great Depression in the late 20s and early 30s. And when the gangs, you know, Al Capone and those guys, (coughs) excuse me, were shooting up the town. And he was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun. It was not a serious injury. He was shot in the ankle. But my dad always remembered the stories that my grandmother told of that knock on the door of, Mrs. Tucker, grab your son, come with us. Your husband's been shot. So when I expressed an interest in going into law enforcement, my dad, and I think a lot of people, you know, they're up against their family's will of what they want to do. You know, you've got to do this. My dad was like, oh, no, no, no. You're going to go to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to get out, you know, get a good job, get married, have 2.4 kids and live happily ever after. (laughs) That's what my dad wanted me to do. That wasn't what I felt I was supposed to do. So I had a dilemma when I graduated from college. It was, well, I could say, yeah, dad, I know you're sick and dying, but sorry, I'm going to go blaze my own trail or out of love and respect for my father, I will do what you want me to do. And so I did. I went into business knowing that that wasn't in my heart. That wasn't something that I I felt I was supposed to do. And, And so I sort of joke. I did what every good son did. I waited until my father passed away and then I followed my own dreams. So that's kind of the background. I guess the answer to your question would be to search for your purpose with an open heart. I mean, a lot of times Mm -hmm. you think you got to have an open mind. What I'm saying is not necessarily an open mind, but an open heart. We were all born to do something in this in this world. You know, you are unique from anybody else who's ever been born and ever will be born. You Mm -hmm. have unique gifts and talents. You have to figure out with an open heart what that is. And when you do, you know, you'll, you'll know it, you know, you'll be like, I can't wait to get up in the morning and go do X. But if it's not, you're not going to be as motivated. You're not going to be, 
yeah, I'll still give 100%, but I'm, this, is, this really isn't my thing. So I think it's important that we keep looking. And the discussion that I talked about earlier about the book with my player, that, that sort of evolved into, well, you know, how will I know? It's like, well, you'll know because you'll have that energy like I can't wait. And mm -hmm. what about time? And I, and I explained to her, <clears throat> Colonel, you know, and this is kind of a goofy example, but I think it, it illustrates it. Colonel Sanders, who started Kentucky Fried Chicken, mm -hmm. didn't start that franchise until after he retired, until he was yeah. into his 60s. Yeah. Now, I don't know if that was his purpose in life. I'm going to assume it was. But can you imagine if he was like 40 years old and be like, no, I quit. I'm done. I'm just going to mm. I'm comfortable. I'm just going to stay right here. We, mm -hmm. we would have never had, and I love Kentucky Fried Chicken, so we, we would have <laughs> never had that franchise. Yeah. So, I mean, what I'm saying is if you haven't found it in your 30s or your 40s or your 50s, don't stop. Don't quit. Keep yeah. looking and look for it with an open heart because if you do, I promise you, you're going to find it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's so, so wonderful. Oh, so wonderful, man. When you think about, you know, the open heart and – um as I was um, reading in, in Proverbs uh, recently and, um, and had a more understanding, again, when you read in like the Old Testament, of course, it's written in Hebrew. So the words that they use in there, what we may think of are defined as, it has a different type of context. And when one of the uh, words were heart, in which it means to have this will, to have, have this, this, this freedom, right? Of, of, of everything within your emotions, your mental, your physical, to be open in that, right? Um, as it relates to the, the passage. And I love how you, you, you kind of really differentiate from the mind and the heart. Because certain things we may see are able to conceptualize in our mind, we may not be able to really conceive it in our heart, you know? And ha have a moment to not to be so enticed to what the mind may feel because our mind may feel special when you think about we're comparison we're comparing ourselves to others you know whether it's intellect whether it's wealth whether it's you know the looks when you get into that heart i feel like you you get into your inner being you yeah. know and you you really get getting into um the values that you have in addition the values that you want to uh continue to foster right of, of really un understanding who you are um, and really getting more in tune to understanding what you are, what you are or what you have been called to do, you know? Um, and I think that's totally, totally wonderful. Um, Can I just follow up there real quick? Yeah. Yeah, please. So one of the, one of the things, and you've said this twice now, and I think it's really important because it's, it's a, it's a really good message. We are, we get so caught up in, you know, finding our purpose that, you know, we spend so much time comparing ourselves to other people, you know, like, why, why aren't I like Jay? Or, you know, why aren't I like Bob or Sally or whoever, you know, and it's, and, and that's, you know, especially for young people, you know, they, they, they you know, well, I, I've got to be like him, or I, I have to have that person in my life. You, you, you don't, don't compare yourself to another human being. You are exactly. unique. Your purpose is unique. Don't do that because that's just going to lead you know, to, to de depression and frustration on your part, because you're not like that person. They, mm -hmm. They're running their own race. They're, they're moving down their own path, just like you are. So I think that's an, that's an incredibly powerful message 
that we, we kind of get caught up in. I, I want to be like him or I want to be like her. No, you want to be like you because yeah. they're not like you and you're not like them. So that's an incredibly important lesson to learn, especially for young people. I mean, you know, and, and the people you surround yourself with in your life, your inner circle, that small group should be people that care about you, that love you, that uplift you, that are willing to tell you the truth. Yes. Even if it costs, yeah. Even if it costs you their relationship. But yeah. what do we do? You know, I mean, you may say to me, hey, Terry, you know, you're kind of messing up here. I wouldn't do that. And what do I say? Oh, you know, Jay, you're not my friend anymore. You know, get away from me. <laughs> no, those people are your friends because they love you enough to risk their relationship you with you to tell you the truth. To tell you the truth. So, so true. So true. Really having accountability. Terry, as we come to, to a close, um, what do you want readers to leave with as they read your book, Sustainable Excellence? I, I guess let, let me leave you with this final story. Um, I've always been a big fan of Westerns growing up. I, you know, my mom and dad used to let me stay up late and watch, you know, Bonanza and Gunsmoke. And, and my favorite was always Wild Wild West. 1993, the movie Tombstone came out. You may have seen it. So it's a big blockbuster. Start Val Kilmer as a man by the name of John Doc Holliday and Kurt Russell as a man by the name of Wyatt Earp. Now, Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday were two living, breathing human beings who walked on the face of the earth. They're not made up characters just for the movie. Now, Doc was called Doc because he was a dentist by trade, but pretty much Doc Holliday was a gunslinger and a card shark. And Wyatt Earp had been a lawman his entire life. And somehow these two men from absolutely opposite backgrounds come together and form this very close friendship. And at the end of the movie, Doc Holliday is dying of tuberculosis uh, in a sanitarium in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which is about three hours from where I live. The real Doc Holliday died in that sanitarium. He's buried in the Glenwood Springs Cemetery. Wyatt at this point in his life is destitute. He has no money, he has no job, he has no prospects for a job. So every day he comes to play cards with Doc and the two men pass the time that way. And in this almost final scene of the movie, the two men are talking about what they want out of life. And Doc says, you know, I was in love with my cousin when I was younger, but she joined a convent over the affair, but she's all I ever wanted. And then he looks at Wyatt and he says, what about you, Wyatt? What do you want? And Wyatt kind of nonchalantly says, eh, I just want to lead a normal life. And Doc looks at him and says, there's no normal. There's just life. And get on with living yours. Jay, you and I probably know people that are sort of sitting back and saying, you know what? When this happens, I'll have a normal life. When that occurs, I'll have a successful life. When yes. this happens, I'll have a significant life. I guess what I'd like to leave you with is this. Don't wait. Don't wait for life to come to you. Get out there. Find the reason you were put on the face of this earth. Use your unique gifts and talents and live that reason. Because if you do, at the end of your life, I'm going to promise you two things. Number one, you're going to be a whole lot happier. And number two, you're going to have a whole lot more peace in your heart. Wow. 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 That's that's so awesome there. Awesome. Awesome there, man. Um, and you, you kind of almost uh, I, I wonder what you would say with this last question here. Um, and, and maybe I'll change it up if there's, you know, maybe one word that comes to your mind. Um, and that is uh, when you think about finish what you start, you know, how would you define that? What's maybe one or two words that comes to your mind? I, I, I think. And, and, and this is the this is the last chapter in my book. And, and I think this is important regardless of what we do, how we do it, where we do it, with whom we do it. And that word is love. 
you know, we have to love our creator. We have to love ourselves. We have to love what we do, you know, what our purpose is. We have to love our fellow man. And, and so I, I think that's probably the greatest word. And, you know, you talked about Hebrew, you know, Hebrew, Greek, Latin, English, whatever you want to say, love is the most important word. And, and if you can keep that top of mind in your life, I don't think you're going to go wrong. You're not going to go wrong. Happy family. Let's give a good warm applause to our good friend, our good neighbor, Terry Tucker. Again, you can go get the book. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Sustainable Excellence, uh, 10 Principles uh, to Help You Really Lead a uh, Uncommon Extraordinary Life. Uh, again, Terry Tucker, I want to thank you. And I want to thank you for joining us. And remember, family, that you are great. You were created for greatness. And no matter what life may bring you, always remember three things. Love God, love self, and love your neighbor. I am your favorite neighbor, Jay Murray. Till next time, be blessed.